Mark 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you want to start heading there, you're certainly welcome to do that. I'll start, though, with a story. Um, it's been well over a decade. I, I started a new job at that time at a, a larger corporation here in town. And it was a really interesting first day. Um, I hadn't been there for more than five minutes when the manager who was, well, I was going to report to and who was going to kind of lead me through orientation said to me, hey, today we've got this all-department meeting, and it's all day long. No. Yeah, and I was like, oh, well, first of all, that's unexpected, and why are you having an all-day, all-department meeting? You know, I'm kind of, it seems odd or at least not normal, right? And so we start walking down the hallway towards the conference room that we're meeting in, and right before we enter the room, she stops and looks at me and says, um, Chris, we, we brought in a consultant uh, today for this meeting who's supposed to help us figure out how to completely restart the entire department. Everything's on the table. Everything could change. Welcome to your first day. And in we went to the conference room, you know. <laughs> I was like, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, no, that's great. That's exactly what I signed up for. Did anyone tell me about this in the interview? I don't think so. Okay. Well, I will tell you that the consultant who led the conversation that day was, was excellent. And it became clear to me, even as the new guy, that the way the department had been functioning wasn't working well. And, and actually, in truth, everyone in the room was in agreement about this. Things needed to change. But as the day went on, and we started to get into the details and actually talk about what would have to change and who would have to change their responsibilities and the reporting structure and their roles, let's just say not everyone was quite as excited about that, right? Because, of course, you know, human beings tend to resist change. Not always, and not forever, but we are very often people who prefer the status quo. We like things the way they are. And I remember in college, probably in high school, but I wasn't paying attention, I really remember in college learning about this idea of homeostasis. Have you heard of this? This is your body's effort to keep things in some ways, uh, constant. Here's a definition, actually, of homeostasis. The tendency to resist change in order to maintain a stable, relatively constant internal environment. Now, one way that your body does this is with your temperature, your internal temperature. And I will tell you, it is a good thing that your body keeps your internal temperature at the same level, right? That is a good thing. Well. Interestingly, it seems to me that it's not just our bodies that work to maintain the status quo. Our minds do it as well. We like the way we think. We become comfortable with our worldview. We're quite confident that we have X or Y or Z figured out. Thank you very much. And so we resist change to what we think and what we believe. 
A friend of mine, some of you may remember him, Chris Shear. He was a pastor here in Grand Rapids. He preached here a number of times at River Tree Community Church. He's now out in uh, Virginia. Uh, he posted on his Facebook page this week a word that I thought was really interesting and quite timely. It's the word petrodoxy. It's just a made-up word. I mean, no one, like, this isn't, I don't think, an actual word so much. It's just uh, an interesting idea. Petra, hardened, petrified, doxy belief. Someone who has a very firm, hardened, set-in-stone way of thinking and believing. It's interesting, right? Well, here's where petrodoxy becomes a challenge. Um, As we look at Mark 2 today, I'm going to suggest that one of the precise reasons that Jesus came to this earth was to disrupt the status quo. I'm going to make that suggestion today. And that may really excite you if you're a person who likes to stick it to the man, so to speak. Um, But what happens when Jesus comes to disrupt our status quo? So Mark 2, there are four kind of subsections to this chapter. Because of time, we we can't read all of them, but we are going to read the, the... final three, or the last three of Mark 2. The first part, verses 1 to 12, are excellent. It's a really cool story. It's actually one of my favorite stories about these generous, kind, self-sacrificing people who help to ensure the healing of their friend. So you can read that, and maybe you did already because you're following the excellent reading guide that's been laid out for you for this, uh, for this series. But we're going to start in verse 13. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. By the way, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, if if you'd like to be in the same one. You certainly don't have to be, but the NLT. Then Jesus went out to the lakeshore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. So let me ask you, what are the religious leaders upset about? What do you think? What's making them so riled up? Yeah, the company he is keeping, the who he is with. That's right. And you get a sense of how deep their disgust is when you hear uh, them call the dinner party guest scum. Not a particularly flattering term, you would agree, right? Um, The religious leaders have come to hold the belief that you should not sit down for a meal with a certain rung of society. Those people over there are out 
They do not belong. They are not worthy, and they are not valued. And Jesus' response to them is abundantly clear. You're wrong, right? You're wrong. The way you apply your religious beliefs, Jesus seems to be saying, and where you draw the societal boundaries is wrong. I don't know. Does this, does this like shake you up at all? Does this bother you at all? Probably not, right? We're listening with 21st century ears. I'm telling you what, I mean, it's hard to find a comparison to describe how shocking and disruptive this would have been to the listeners that Jesus is with. He is violating clear social and religious norms, and he is doing it intentionally. It's not as if he accidentally called a tax collector, oh, whoops, you're a tax collector, I didn't know. That's not what's going on. Nor, nor did he just stumble his way into this dinner party. <laughs> Whoa, what's all this? This is No, he is choosing, he is choosing to be there. He is intentionally, I'm suggesting, upending the status quo. So hold on that, and then let's look at the next story, verse 18. Once, when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting... Some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old wines, oh sorry, who would patch old clothing with new cloth for the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. So Jesus and his disciples are asked why they are not fasting. The religious leaders come and say, hey, Jesus, John's disciples are fasting. We're fasting. Everybody is fasting. Why are you not fasting, right? And Jesus gives these couple of answers about not fasting while the groom is there. He's clearly the groom in that metaphor. And then these old patch and, and new cloth and new wineskins and all this interesting stuff which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. But again, the point I want to make at this particular spot is that Jesus is intentionally not following religious tradition and guidelines. He seems to be telling the religious leaders in us that his arrival signals the beginning of something completely new. And then verse 23 is the last little subsection here of chapter 2. One Sabbath day as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, 
Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abathar was high priest, and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Plenty there to talk about, but again, for this moment, um, let's just kind of focus on this interaction that Jesus is having with the religious leaders. They are out of their minds upset, right? Why? Because Jesus is not keeping the Sabbath. Now, how many of you have the Ten Commandments memorized? Some of you went to Sunday school. I know you did, and you had to learn the Ten Commandments. What is I think it's number, I should know this, number two. Is it number two, the Sabbath? I, three? It is four. I would trust you. Someone look it up. Figure it out. It's early. It, it, even if it isn't early, the point is it's one of the ten. Folks, cool. one of the ten commandments. This isn't small little, you know, on the fringe sort of stuff that Jesus is, is not following. He is... He is disrupting like some of the most central parts of the Jewish tradition. So we have him early in that first story we looked at, disrupting societal norms, relational norms, and then he upends the religious traditions. And all of this would have had people's heads spinning again to you and I, it might not feel like all that big of a deal. So let me try and give a very imperfect analogy. Very imperfect. Imagine that someone came who had authority and power to do this and said, this year, we are not going to practice anything related to Christmas. We are not going to put up decorations. We are not going to give presents. We are not going to sing any of the songs. All the music is gone. We are not going to gather for feasts. We're none of it. Nothing that we do and have done, we're going to do again. How would you feel about that, I wonder? Would you be like, oh, that's great. How fun. Something new, right? <laughs> again, it's an imperfect analogy, but I think it maybe helps us feel a little bit what it might have been like to have someone coming and completely upending traditions and patterns and ways of belief and ways of acting in the world that were held so dearly and that carried such meaning with them. Um, again, back to this idea of petrodoxy. If you can understand why the people in Jesus' day would have resisted the change that Jesus was bringing. I mean, I hope you can have compassion for the religious leaders. I grew up thinking they, that they were um, short-sighted idiots. You know, how could they not get it? I hope we can have some more compassion for them. Because changing the way that you think and changing your belief system, changing how you see the world, 
those are not small things. Those require the, the deepest parts of us to undergo transformation, and that's, it's just hard, hard work. So in verse 17, Jesus finishes his conversation with the religious leaders uh, by, saying, by saying this. What does this all mean for us? I think this may be a place to start. I've come to not call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Okay. There are those who think they are righteous and those who know that they are sinners. To be self-righteous is to believe that you have it all figured out, right? Righteous, to be righteous is to think that you are right, to believe that you are right, to try and be right. I mean, righteousness in its best sense means that I am right with you. We are in right relationship. We are right, I'm right with God, I'm right with the world. Maybe another word might be harmony, harmonious, harmonious, right? Might be another word for righteous. We are at peace. But those who are self-righteous, who think that they are righteous, who have an arrogance about them, Jesus says, that is not who I have come to call. These people who think that they see the world perfectly, that they have all the answers, that they have it all figured out, that's not who I came to call. I came to call those who know that they are what? Sinners. Now that word, come on, let's be honest, friends, that word's got baggage, Right? In the Greek, the word sinner just means someone who has deviated from the path. I think in our um, fire and brimstone um, upbringing that some of us have had encounters with, again, that word has such baggage. The, the question isn't, are you or are you not a sinner? No, no, you're a sinner because you've deviated from the path of life. You've done things that have, have been you know, off, off path, offbeat. The question is, do you know that you are a sinner? Are you someone who has the awareness of themselves and the humility that allows you to say, I may be wrong? I may not see the whole picture. There may be parts of my life, my thinking, my worldview that need disrupting. Are you this kind of person? <laughs> I, my answer might be that I'd like to be. Truth is, there are, there are parts of who I am and how I think and the, the view on the world that I hold um, that I think push come to shove, I am dead, dead absolutely spot on right about. And you know what? I might be. But can I be someone who has a posture of humility to say, I might not be too. And even if I am the one who is right, Am I willing to learn from you, to be in relationship with you so that 
what you think and how you see the world and your sense of righteousness would be able to shape and inform me? Am I willing to be close enough to you for that to happen? Or, which is more likely, am I willing to say, I'm right, you're wrong, and you stay over there until you come to my way of thinking? You know, the religious leaders thought that they had it all figured out, and I think so do we sometimes. I mean, just look at this 2020. We're going to head into a year here that is going to be brutal, polarized in ways that I don't think we've still yet seen. We will reach new depths of that. Will we not think in those moments that we have it all figured out? I bet we probably will, you know. And again, you might be right. That's possible. You might have the correct, the kingdom perspective, but can you be in relationship with people? And can you be willing to let Jesus disrupt your status quo? Hmm. Last week was chapter one, and in chapter one I said Jesus gives this thesis, I think it's verse 14, the kingdom of God has drawn near, come near, repent and believe. I said to you, this is Jesus' thesis, his, his topic sentence, his main driving thrust for the whole gospel of Mark. What does repent mean? Turn around, that's right. To be walking in one direction and to turn and head in a different one. It has a specific connotation, though, with turning around the way that you think. The way that you think. If this is Jesus' thesis, if this is the way to move closer to the kingdom of God, then we have to be people who are willing to repent, to turn around, who are humble enough to say, I might not have it figured out. I might be the one who's deviated from the path here. We have to be people who are willing to form new wineskins for the new wine. So, as we end here this morning, let me ask you, are there any places in your life, and this is probably a question you're going to have to ruminate on for much more than a few moments here, because we're really good at self-deception. Are there any places in your life that you believe you have all figured out? What would it look like for you to, to adopt a more humble posture that at least opens the door to the possibility that you have more to learn, more to discover about who God is and about who you are and, and about this world? Can you be people who repent and believe? Thank God we have many gifts that God gives us to help us in that journey. And one of them is this, this gift that we share every week. I will often say when introducing communion that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and after giving thanks for it, he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then I will say, 
That same night he took the cup, and after blessing it, he said to his disciples, this cup is the, do you remember this next part? This cup is the new covenant. Covenant. 